Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, January 15th, we are studying Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. Jesus made quite the impression in the synagogue there in Capernaum by his teaching and his casting out of an unclean spirit. In today's text, his ministry of healing and teaching continues in the surrounding region of Galilee. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Dan Speckard. Pastor Speckard serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana. Pastor Speckard, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Yeah, thank you for having me back. As we get started this morning, Pastor Speckard, let's talk a little bit of context here in the Gospel of Mark. We're not all that far into the Gospel. We've seen Jesus get a quick start. What do we need to know going into our text for today? Yeah, a quick start is exactly right. I mean, that's typical of Mark's uh, gospel here that we, uh, as, as I think you've discussed with previous guests, uh, really hit the ground running. And though we're just um, uh, 30 verses into the first chapter, uh, quite a bit has already happened. Uh, John the Baptist has already come. Our Lord has been uh, baptized. John has been uh, arrested. Uh, Jesus has called his first disciples. Um, and now you have in uh, Capernaum, which uh, I think I heard yesterday, uh, described as our Lord's kind of his, his home base uh, there in the region of Galilee. Uh, in Capernaum, you have Jesus beginning to do the things that Jesus does. He's teaching and he's preaching, uh, but he's also performing miracles and demonstrating his power, um, certainly uh, in the, um, uh, obviously, the, the whole point of his demonstrating this power here is pointing us towards uh, what he came to do. And that's really uh, maybe as we uh, zoom out a little bit, uh, that's really the, the context we want to be paying attention to, is this interplay between the activity of Jesus and the message of Jesus, uh, and the, you know, the ways in which uh, our Lord's message of love really is uh, an action in of itself. Um, and that's, you know, Mark's gospel, which has such a quick pace, uh, is a, a fantastic example of what God's love in movement uh, looks like. So, uh, that's kind of what we're we're dealing with today. Talk a little bit more about that. Jesus teaching his love is an action in itself. I think we started to see that yesterday when Mark puts side by side, because Jesus did them side by side, his teaching and his casting out of a demon, that in looking at those two things together, you begin to see that Jesus' teaching actually is part of his action. It's not that he does a lot of stuff and just says a few things. His saying, his teaching actually is his doing. Dig into that a little bit more for us, because I think we're going to see it in our text today as well. Yeah, that's right. That's vital to understand in Mark 2, because, you know, compared to uh, the other Gospels, it seems as though Jesus is saying relatively little in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, but in actuality, what he is saying um, is so closely tied up in what he's doing uh, that the proclamation of the gospel is just as clear. Um, if you go back to verse 15, uh, right after uh, John is arrested, uh, you have this, Mark describes, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, 
the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, that is a, a, you know, you can really take a long time unpacking just that simple proclamation that the kingdom of God is here and he is it. Uh, And the gospel of God, the good news of salvation through forgiveness, uh, that's not just an idea. Uh, It's a message in the sense that there's news to be delivered. Uh, But Jesus is himself that news, Uh, and not just Jesus the man, but Jesus the mission, Jesus, uh, you know, for us, uh, particularly in terms of Christ crucified and risen. um, What Jesus is uh, proclaiming is what Jesus is doing. And so throughout the Gospel of Mark, particularly as we get uh, nearer and nearer to the cross, uh, you'll see all of his um, teaching and preaching just so wonderfully intertwined uh, with his activity, um, his healing, his his you know mastery of the earthly elements, his um, uh, interaction with his own disciples and also those who are opposed to him. Um, so really wonderful um, uh, sort of pace to this gospel, where the action of Jesus and the message of Jesus are uh, are you know so clearly one and the same. The title of this series is the Gospel in Action, which is on purpose, that it's not the gospel of action. Not that we couldn't say that about St. Mark. He he does give us the gospel of action. There's a lot of action. But we also see, as we've been saying, this is the gospel in action. When the gospel is proclaimed, God is doing something. Jesus is actually doing something. He is acting when the gospel is preached. I think you had a few thoughts on that from something from Martin Luther you were telling me before we got started this morning. Yeah, yes. Uh, the, um, the title you chose is so wonderful. And the first thing I Uh, I thought of when I heard the gospel in action uh, is Luther very famously defined uh, the Hebrew word uh, kesed, uh, which typically in the, in the old Testament and English translations, we see translated as steadfast love and it's everywhere, uh, particularly in the Psalms. Um, Luther defined that word, not as steadfast love, but he called it God's goodness in action. Uh, And that's always stuck with me because I think that, Uh, One of the things we have to remember is that God's goodness and God's love for us are not just ideas. They're not just nebulous concepts floating off in space somewhere, uh, but rather they are, um, uh, God has tied those things to his activity for us and amongst us. So you can go back to his creative activity, of course, uh, but after the fall into sin, that Uh, That goodness has become salvific activity, uh, whereby he has sent his son in order that we who were once good and who have now fallen might be made good again. And then, of course, uh, uh, post-ministry of Jesus in the uh, New Testament era, you have God's goodness in action through the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, where his love is being poured out in word and sacraments. Um, It's such a wonderful uh, theme within Mark that uh, just as our own sin and our own suffering and sickness and sorrow, these aren't just ideas. These are very real things that people feel. Uh, the, the need for love is very, very real and tangible, and God does not respond with intangible love, but tangible love, touchable, feelable, uh, hearable, tasteable love in the person of Christ. Uh, and that's uh, something Mark's gospel really uh, underscores. And we see that in today's text as well. So we are reading this morning, beginning in Mark chapter 1, verse 29. And immediately he, Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. 
And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. That's the text for today, Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. Pastor Speckard, the text begins with that wonderful Markan flavor. Immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Those four disciples he called previously in this chapter are with him. He goes to the house of Simon. Take us into the, just that first verse as Mark sets the scene for us. Yeah, well, and I, I love that we begin with that and immediately, uh, which we're just going to hear over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, because it sort of connects us to what had happened previously in the synagogue there in Capernaum, where uh, you have this really dynamic interaction between uh, Christ and a man uh, possessed by an unclean spirit, and the reaction of the people who uh, see the way Jesus, who was already teaching not as their scribes, but as one with authority, exercises his authority even over a demon. Uh, which is a remarkable thing. And, and that's sort of a, um, uh, you know, really important aspect of the beginning of our Lord's ministry. He's, he's come as uh, someone who teaches, but teaches differently than what the people are accustomed to. Teaches as one uh, who has a, an authority unlike that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, certainly uh, no one they were used to dealing with could uh, speak in the way that Jesus spoke uh, to an unclean spirit, uh, and then the unclean spirit listens, which is such a um, uh, such a remarkable thing. Uh, obviously, in the uh, in the minds of the people there uh, in the synagogue, um, one other maybe important thing to recognize: uh, Velt in his commentary points out that uh, the synagogue, typically we translate it the synagogue, but but really here in the Greek, it's their synagogue. He he left their synagogue, which kind of puts a um, maybe a little bit of tension uh, between Jesus and the typical Second Temple Judaism uh, synagogue-based worship uh, and, and study of God's Word that is going on there in the first century, uh, that there's um, uh, obviously so early in the gospel not a lot of outright uh, antipathy, but there's a different thing happening with Jesus than what was going on before, and the Jewish people are going to have to um, sort of get a grip on who this Jesus is, uh, because he's not just another scribe. Uh, he's come to, to be something uh, with a little bit more oomph, uh, which, of course, we know uh, is, is, you know, stands to reason as he is the very son of God. Uh, but for them, this was, they were kind of having to feel this out a little bit. I think that's a, an important point to make, because there's something that you could just sort of go right past without really noticing, because Mark doesn't highlight it here. But with this context, immediately he left their synagogue. I think we should understand this still as that same Sabbath day that Jesus, he had just been in the synagogue for the Sabbath. It is still the Sabbath. And so you've got Jesus, well, doing things on the Sabbath, which again, 
isn't a conflict at this point in Mark's gospel, or at least the evangelist doesn't write about it at this point, but it does become a conflict very quickly in this gospel. And so it, it does seem he's starting to already set that stage for you when you pay attention to the context, as you see that, yes, Jesus is doing something different. We've noticed his authority already. We've noticed how he can command a demon and the demons believe. And now he's, well, he's doing things that maybe aren't quite what people are expecting already. And, and when you're watching the context like that, you can see those details jump out. So Mark's setting the stage here for what is to come in the chapters that follow. This is the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. One of the things I think you see in this text is of the characters in the story that are not Jesus, it seems that Simon plays a pretty central role, which I think fits pretty well with what we typically think about where Mark is getting his material from. He's probably getting this from Peter. Yeah, that's, you know, that's really important to remember. And I think that um, uh, particularly as, as we, you know, week in, week out, we're hearing gospel readings and maybe aren't remembering the um, external context of each gospel. Uh, yeah, St. Mark was, was, you know, traditionally understood to be heavily influenced by Peter in the same way that, uh, you know, Luke and St. Paul have kind of a, a complex relationship. And uh, we often associate, you know, Paul and Peter don't have their own gospels, uh, but uh, Paul has Luke and, and Peter has Mark. Um, and that's important for us to remember because, like with this account, there's a really personal feel to it, uh, which makes sense if you consider that this was a, uh, a close relative of, of St. Peter's and it happened uh, in his house. Um, you can sort of shed some light on the vividness with which this, uh, this account is uh, described. Um, and then maybe just to circle back to something you said about the Sabbath, uh, we're going to see that, that um, again, you hate to say tension because the tension hasn't really built yet. Uh, but there is a little bit of a conflict there, and you see it when uh, the people aren't bringing anybody to Jesus until after sundown, um, which would have been, a, you know, a Sabbath regulation there. Um, but Jesus, who is, as we know, the fulfillment of the Sabbath, um, he is bringing the kingdom of God uh, wherever and whenever he is. And uh, the uh, the Sabbath day is very much given way to the, uh, the fulfillment of the Sabbath that is Jesus the Christ. Uh, so we'll see that here, too. Right. Again, Mark is, is laying the foundation for that conflict that will come, and then, as you said, to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Now, it, Simon Peter, it's his home that Jesus goes to, and the person that receives the focus is Simon's mother-in-law. She has a fever. It's probably worth at least just pointing out that if Simon has a mother-in-law, then, well, he's married. And, and given the background of the Lutheran Church and where we came from in the Reformation, that's just a—it's it's worth seeing, I think. Yeah, yeah, and it's not, it's not insignificant. I mean, the, um, <laughs> certainly in the, um, uh, the context of yeah, ecumenical conversations around the time of the Reformation, uh, the marriage of priests was, was something they were, uh, they were debating even then, uh, obviously continues to be a, a, a point of— um, disputes between us and uh, the Roman Church, and and you know whatever we would say about that, the text is very very clear. I mean, Simon uh, Simon had a mother-in-law. You can't have a mother-in-law without being married. Uh, and then also uh, Saint Paul um, in First Corinthians chapter nine uh, lists Cephas Simon as um, 
you know, one who has, who has been married, who has a wife. So uh, really no doubt about that. Um, and, and if we had more time, we could really, really dive into what this means that the disciples had wives and, and um, what, how that might apply to the uh, pastoral office. Uh, certainly I'm glad uh, that we have landed on the side of marrying uh, for obvious reasons. I think that's, that's the right decision. That's right. <laughs> yes, agreed. <laughs> for for I yeah for for multiple reasons. That's right. That's right. And again, that's not the point of this particular text. But in that larger scriptural context, a verse like this is important to see that Simon Peter, who some might label the first pope, he was in fact married, and and that's yeah. that should play into that conversation. Now, yeah, Mark no is. Yeah, I mean, Mark is not interested in that particular conversation in his text. He is focused on what is Jesus doing? And so Simon's mother-in-law, she's got this fever, and immediately they tell him, they tell Jesus about her. I think we would say they're they're praying is what they're doing. Yeah, isn't that interesting that, you know, they have an opportunity to pray to God in the way that Christians pray, which is, uh, uh, a mediated type of prayer. It comes through uh, Jesus. Um, we don't, I think, often think of the interaction between the disciples and Jesus as that. And I guess we wouldn't characterize all of their conversation as prayer per se. But certainly in this case, where there's an obvious need, uh, you know, a, a relative is uh, is ill. Uh, St. Luke in his gospel describes the um, the sickness as a great fever. So this is a, a serious thing. Uh, and they've just seen Jesus uh, cast out uh, an unclean spirit in the synagogue. And you can understand why it would occur to them to maybe see if there's something he could do about this. And it, um, as prayer tends to be, uh, it's a little bit of an act of faith because um, this isn't something they had witnessed Jesus doing. Um, this was, in the Gospel of Mark, his first uh, opportunity to heal somebody with a sickness. And the fact that they thought to um, uh, bring Jesus into that conversation, um, I think, suggests a, a hopefulness on their part that, um, well, he has an authority unlike that, uh, you know, that, that we're familiar with. Uh, maybe he, he would have some authority here. Uh, and indeed, he does. Um, one of the uh, this is this is a little bit of an aside, but it's been been on my mind lately in, in teaching and preaching. Um, so important to recognize the disciples pray to Jesus, uh, particularly Simon, uh, pray to Jesus regarding his mother-in-law, and um, that's not the end of it, uh, which is to say that so often, you know, for, especially with the, the events that have taken place in our, uh, in our country and our culture over the past week and month and, and year, uh, you'll hear people, people say all the time, prayer is the answer. Um, you can appreciate the sentiment in the sense that uh, it's a good thing to turn to God uh, with our, our desires, the innermost uh, workings of our heart. Um, but it's not really the answer. Almost by definition, it's a question. Prayer is a question, a request, a petition. Uh, the answer is what God does in the person of his son. Uh, and we, we see that playing out uh, very, very quickly here. But a good reminder for us as Christians, um, it's not just that Simon Peter um, uh, spoke to Jesus about his mother-in-law. It's that Jesus responded to that hopeful uh, request made in faith uh, by uh, doing the type of thing that only he can do, uh, taking her hand, lifting her up, and healing her. Um, in the same way for us as Christians, when we pray to God uh, through Jesus as our 
intercessor. Uh, we do well not just to pray and think, okay, well, that's it, uh, but to be looking all the more earnestly for the way that God responds through his Son. And for us, that's word and sacrament, as, as we know. The way that you attached prayer to faith is really important. And along those same lines as what you were saying about prayer being the answer, not quite taking the the full the fullness of what prayer is and what prayer expects. You, sometimes you'll hear a similar thing about the power of prayer. There's there's power in prayer, and again, understanding the sentiment, yes, but the power is actually in the one to whom the prayer is offered. It is it is the Lord who answers our prayers, who hears and answers them. There is where the power lies, and Peter's prayer here would not have been anything if he had offered it to someone else. But because he offers it to the Lord in the flesh, then that prayer does do something because of the one who answers it. And that, that's, a, that's a really important reminder, so that prayer does remain that act of faith in the Lord, and not faith in myself or my ability to pray or my uttering of the right words, but it rather remains a reliance upon the only one who can actually do something about it. And as you said, Jesus does do something about it. Feel free to respond more to the, the thoughts on prayer if you'd like, and then take us into how Jesus actually does answer this prayer in the text. Yeah, so yeah, just, and again, this is, my the people here at St. Peter will tell you this has become a little bit of a hobby <laughs> horse of mine, so I, I won't go on much longer, but but uh, it is so it is so vital uh, to, to understand this. In, in places, uh, in, in, you know, certain Christian context, uh, prayer itself has kind of replaced sacramental theology, um, and that's such a tragic um, uh, thing to have happened, because uh, God responds to our prayer by giving us Jesus in the sacraments. If you replace the sacraments with just prayer, all you, you just sort of have all of these open-ended questions, and you can just, how different would the scene have been uh, if Peter prayed to Jesus and Jesus just nodded and went about his business. Um, you know, it, it matters how God responds. And if we're going to uplift prayer, and we should, uh, all the more should we uplift uh, the way that God responds to prayer. Uh, and a text like this is a, uh, a great example. And then, you know, our Lord's response is, is uh, so wonderful to behold here. Everything happened so quickly in Mark. But um, if you just zoom in on verse uh, 31, uh, a really beautiful description. He came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up. Um, you know, for us in the uh, pandemic-ridden world we've been uh, enduring for the past 10 or 11 months, um, this concept of the Lord actually touching her um, skin to skin, flesh to flesh, um, not maintaining social distance, presumably not wearing a mask, it's really, it's just so uh, so much of a relief. And obviously that's not to say anything against uh, the the social distance requirements we have in place right now, um, but it is, I think, a nice reminder uh, of the way things uh, the way things ought to be, the way things we hope will be again soon. Uh, Jesus does not come to uh, keep himself clean. Uh, our Lord is not one who uh, whose ministry was about preserving his own uh, purity or cleanliness or health, obviously. Um, you'll see that so much more vividly in the next pericope where he's interacting with a leper, uh, but here already with um, uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, um, he touches her. And that, I mean, that is for anybody who's ever, um, you know, shaken hands or received a hug at a time of emotional distress, 
um, you know, you'll know just the, the power of that and so much more the power of it when it's the very Son of God taking you by the hand and lifting you up and uh, in a way that only Jesus uh, can accomplish, uh, she's healed. The fever leaves her, uh, which is what we, you know, certainly we who know the full ministry of Jesus would expect. Uh, but at the time, what, uh, you know, the impact of that miracle must have been astounding uh, that this woman who was gravely ill um, in a moment with a touch is healed and gets up and, uh, and begins to serve. Um, really, really powerful passage there. Yeah, in, in typical Markan fashion, he he just narrates it, and that's that. The very last part of this section, she began to serve them. I think it would certainly serve as evidence that she has, in fact, been healed. The fever is gone, and she is well. But maybe there's a little bit more than just she's better now. What is what is there in her response to this healing? Well, I mean, that's yeah, great. It is so funny because Mark, everything just reads like. Uh, almost like a police report, just this happened, this happened, this happened. Um, but yeah, you consider kind of the the woe factor of this woman has been healed, and what does she do? She begins to serve the Lord and his followers. Uh, what a powerful example for every Christian of every place who has received spiritual healing uh, through the, the ministry of the gospel. Um, and then, you know, as I, we're constantly telling our people, um, you know, you, you receive this uh, the reality of forgiveness, life, and salvation in baptism. But in almost every case, after your baptism, you're not immediately called home to heaven. You you remain in the valley of the shadow of death. You're living this earthly life. And what are you going to do with the time you've been given in this place? Um, you know, people really lose a lot of sleep throughout the course of their lives, wondering about their purpose and their point. Um, a nice reminder here from Simon, Peter, uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law that, you know, this is going to look like a thousand different things for a thousand different people. But the thrust of what our purpose is, is having been healed, we serve. Having been served by the healing ministry of the gospel, now we serve the Lord. And of course, as we know, uh, the Lord has uh, given us explicit instructions that in order to serve him, uh, we serve those, uh, the people he has put into our lives. Um, and that's what, what uh, Peter's mother-in-law does, really provides this this beautiful, um, almost paradigm for Christian life. Be healed by God, be served by God, be loved by God, and then go and serve and love your neighbor. Um, what more can we do? Yeah, a wonderful picture of the Christian life, as you said. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. We're looking at part of Mark chapter 1 this morning. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Cross Defense is the show where we talk about curious topics to excite the imagination, equip the mind, and comfort the soul with God's Word. Join me, Pastor Tyrell Bramwell, every Monday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio, or anytime on KFUO.org, or even your favorite podcast app. My friends, our foe is a fierce enemy. Our only defense is Christ on the cross. In 1924, by the grace of God, KFUO began broadcasting the good news of Christ for you. 
A long part of this history is bringing you worship services to hear and receive the good gifts of God in His words. This Sunday morning, join us for services from Trinity Lutheran Church at 8 a.m. and Village Lutheran Church at 1040, as well as Bible studies from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere at 930. Hear Christ for you in Sunday morning services on KFUO. Each weekday on The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah, we share and discuss stories of living boldly Lutheran. Including missionary updates, mercy work, events and topics applicable to your daily vocations, and maybe some fresh dark roast. The Coffee Hour weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO, underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, January 15th. We're studying Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. This morning, we've got Pastor Dan Speckard with us. He serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana. Pastor Speckard, prior to the break, we were looking at the scene. Jesus in the house of Simon. Jesus heals his mother-in-law, Simon's mother-in-law, by touching her. The fever leaves she then serves the one who has served her first. The text continues in verse 32, that evening at sundown. So as you mentioned earlier, the Sabbath is now over and people start to bring these who are sick to Jesus. Again, not to, not to dig too much, but there's a bit of tension here you were saying earlier in the fact that Jesus has been doing things on the Sabbath, but it seems that most people are waiting until after the Sabbath is over. Right. Yeah. And there, you know, I think that we, um, uh, 2000 years later, look back and, uh, and sort of wonder, well, how did you miss that this was the son of God, but they're just meeting this Jesus. I mean, this, right. uh, Jesus burst onto the scene, uh, and particularly in Mark's gospel, he's just, he's there and he begins to do his thing. And it's, um, probably a little bit overwhelming and, and obviously hard for the people to, uh, to understand now, you know that's not to excuse their their slowness to uh, to believe later on. Um, but uh, yeah, for us, you know, looking back on this, we do see a little bit of tension. Uh, they're waiting for the Sabbath to end to come to the Son of God, um, but we who are uh, aware of who Jesus is and what He's come to do, you know, we would say, look, that He is the Sabbath. Uh, the Sabbath day restrictions were uh, designed to prepare people for and to uh, point people towards uh, the coming of Christ. And now that he's here, it doesn't make any sense to uh, to maintain both. Uh, the old has passed away. The new has arrived. Uh, the Sabbath day is of precious little significance when compared to the uh, what we might call the Sabbath man, uh, the, the person of Christ uh, himself. And so uh, kind of just a little funny thing. Uh, that they're uh, they're waiting till sundown to bring their sick and their oppressed to Jesus. Um, I think you know obviously we know uh, our Lord would would have them just come right away. Um, he is not um, <laughs> he is not overly concerned with observing those regulations himself because he of course knows who he is and what he's come to do. Um, not a huge deal here in, in the early part of Mark's gospel, but it does hint at a a conflict that's going to grow a bit uh, as uh, as our Lord's ministry continues. It, it's quite something that, well, and, and I'm just trying to think through the, the whole scene here. A number of these people, I suppose, would have been at the synagogue, and they would have heard Jesus, and they would have seen him cast out the demon. And so they would have 
they knew about him already and they wait till sundown. I don't know. I, was, I mean, I'm just thinking like, well, maybe there were some people who weren't at the synagogue. Apparently word gets to them because this is this is the whole city that comes, Mark says, even even if they do wait until the Sabbath is officially over. This is quite the response to the man that has taught with authority and cast out a demon with authority. Mark kind of gives us one of these summary statements of what Jesus is doing. Take us into what he's saying in this uh, verses 33 and 34. Yeah, you know, I think it's um, uh, so important for us to remember that, um, you know, at the time of Jesus and really throughout the history of the world, uh, sickness uh, and and malady um, was a much more intimate, personal, um, uh, sort of closely felt thing than what we're accustomed to. I mean, we in the modern world, um, we're, what we're used to is when you get sick, you go to the doctor. When you get sick, if you're really sick, you go to the hospital. But we have this such a separation uh, between the sick and the healthy, and we we really go out of our way to maintain these um, kind of these you know clean lines um, where you're not you're not mixing uh, the reality of sickness, which is really just a manifestation of the reality of mortality, with what we would call everyday life. But not so for the people of Jesus' time. I mean, uh, sickness uh, and, and suffering was um, uh, something that they had no choice but to, uh, to include as an aspect of their everyday life, because it's, there were no five-story hospitals. Uh, there weren't, there, modern medicine obviously wasn't, uh, wasn't a thing at that time. Uh, and so, you know, I think it, it makes sense that, uh, yeah, they hear about what this Jesus can do. Um, and as that news spreads, you, you know, maybe he can help me. Uh, maybe he can heal uh, my mother-in-law or my brother uh, or myself. Uh, and so they begin to come and, and uh, uh, Jesus, of course, is, is, uh, he's there, and as is typical, uh, he is showing compassion on these people who are suffering. Um, it is interesting, we have kind of an echo of the previous pericope, uh, that when he's casting out demons, uh, again, he's not permitting the demons to speak because they know him. And that's something I know you, you had a chance to talk quite a bit about uh, yesterday, uh, so I don't want to um, to rehash too much of that conversation, but it it is you know, one thing that I think as Christians we do well to recognize in that sort of um, that little interplay where the demons know him, but Jesus doesn't let them speak. It's a good reminder for us that, you know, we're used to thinking of unbelief in terms of uh, people either uh, rejecting the sort of uh, philosophical necessity for the existence of a creator or the historicity of the Gospels. Um but that's not really the type of unbelief we see most often in, in the scriptures. Um, the demons knew exactly who Jesus was, and certainly they knew that he was real. Uh, and yet their unbelief uh, was was, uh, was persistent. Um, in our confessions as well, the type of unbelief that is most commonly addressed isn't sort of the modern um, apologetic defense of you know, was Jesus of Nazareth a, a historical person? And, um, you know, all of that's important and vital to the gospel. Uh, but it's possible to know who Jesus is and yet still reject his promises and his love. And uh, we do well in our sort of proclamation of our Lord's ministry uh, and, and saving work. Um, it's not just trying to get people to say God is real uh, or, or, you know, Jesus is real. Um, even I believe in Jesus, we need to make sure people understand it. You have to believe 
that what he did, he did for you, uh, and that you have no hope for salvation outside of his saving work. Um, again, not not at all what Mark's focus is here, uh, but I think that um, that interaction with the demons is, is important for us to consider as uh, as Christians today. Mark has side by side that Jesus is healing sicknesses and he's casting out demons. And we were talking at the beginning about how all of this is in the context of Jesus coming onto the scene in verses 14 and 15 and beginning to proclaim the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And I think it's pretty easy to see how teaching fits into that. I mean, Jesus is proclaiming that. I think that it's fairly easy to see how the casting in of demons fits into that, that these are those who would attack the reign of God, and so Jesus is exerting power over them. How does the healing of sicknesses fit into the proclamation of the reign of God and the coming of the reign of God? Why is, why is the healing of sicknesses a part of that as well? Yeah, that's a, I mean, a really important thing to understand, that the, the kingdom of God the reign of God, uh, which we have described elsewhere in the scriptures, uh, very, very clearly as you know, being without, without suffering, without sorrow. Um, you know, sickness cannot, uh, cannot be uh, in the presence of our perfect Lord who made everything good. Certainly, we can't, we can't imagine sickness in Eden because sickness is a uh, sort of a, um, a consequence of our, uh, of our mortality. Uh, the fact that we um, uh, we die is made so clear to us in our day-to-day lives through the fact that our, our bodies hurt and our uh, immune system lets us down and we, uh, we struggle against just basic physical maladies. Um, those things can't coexist with the perfection of God's kingdom. Um, and certainly as, you know, Jesus is himself the coming of the kingdom, uh, it makes sense that sickness would sort of be, uh, would be giving way uh, to his presence. Um, what's really, really interesting is that, of course, Jesus came, you know, the, the, whole, the whole thrust of his ministry, and we see this a little bit in the upcoming verses, he didn't come just to defeat sickness. He could have done that with a snap of a finger, and, and that would have been it. Uh, but he came to remove sickness, suffering, sorrow uh, from the sort of uh, condition of mankind. And the only way he could do that is by taking it upon himself. Uh, so it's no little thing, even here in the beginning stages of his ministry, when he's healing people, uh, we might um, think of that as him taking their disease into and onto himself. And it's not like he made himself sick in that moment, uh, but certainly he is on his way uh, to uh, great suffering uh, great sorrow, unlike anything anyone else has ever known, um, because that's what he came to do, not just to heal, but to heal in such a way uh, that we would be eternally healed, and that would require sacrifice, as we'll see. Right, and and these physical healings that we see in Jesus' ministry should point us forward to that event, to the sacrifice that he makes of himself on the cross, and then to the resurrection, because that's ultimately where the healing comes in its fullness. You know, when you think about these people who were healed in Mark chapter 1, they later died and and are resting in their graves right now, awaiting the resurrection. It is the cross and empty tomb that we see at the end of the gospel. That's where all of this is driving toward, and, and we should understand it in that context. 
so that it, it's not just the physical healing here and now, but it is that final healing that comes in the resurrection of the dead. All of these physical healings that Jesus is accomplishing are a sign that, that that's what he's come to accomplish. And I, I don't say that to undermine the physical healing. How, how wonderful that these people were physically healed, as we'll see in the next text concerning the leper. How What a great gift of God that this leper who was unclean and diseased suddenly has been healed. That is a fantastic thing. But without the cross and resurrection of our Lord, that physical healing doesn't have the, the fullness that Christ has come to give. And so these, these physical healings should always point us forward to the resurrection, to that full healing, which, again, we participate in by receiving the proclamation of the good news. That's where the, these two things go together, the proclaiming of the good news, the healing, all pointing forward to the ultimate resurrection that our Lord will give to us on the last day. Right, and that's where you know the, when we when throughout the Gospel of Mark we're trying to uh, maintain our understanding of this interplay between Jesus's message and Jesus's activity. Really important to kind of uh, differentiate between the activity with a lowercase a, which is not not unimportant. His healing, his casting out of demons. I mean, these things uh, obviously serve a purpose, uh, but the the activity or the action with an uppercase a. Uh, is the cross and the empty tomb, and we would never want to uh, never want to let the um, temporal healings um, eclipse the eternal healing uh, that takes place by our Lord's crucifixion and resurrection. And we have to say these things because uh, we are are very often tempted to seek only temporal blessings from God, um, and maybe to let the possibility of um, earthly healing kind of distract us from the promise of spiritual healing that we have in Christ. Um, so yeah, that's a really important point. Jesus spends some time, I would imagine, healing. that This is happening at sundown. It says the whole city is there that he's healing. And as the text continues, after Jesus has finished the healing and the casting out of demons, Mark tells us that it was very early the next morning that Jesus got up while it was still dark to go pray, I don't don't imagine he slept a whole lot. Maybe he did. I mean, again, that's a, a bit of reading into what's there. But Jesus is a busy man, it seems. And yet, he gets up really early to go and pray. And this, oh, this is a bit mysterious, I think. Because we're talking about the Son of God here, who goes and prays. What, what's going on here, Pastor Specker? Yeah, that is, is, is such a... Um... Uh, such a powerful image that, you know, the, the eternal logos, the, uh, the word of God, uh, who is there from the beginning, praying uh, to God the Father. And, we, you know, it's kind of what is happening here. Uh, but it's a reminder of who Jesus is, uh, that uh, even in his incarnation, in his earthly ministry, uh, he is still very much God's son. And the foundation of all existence, um, going back uh, before the fall, going back to the, the creation of anything, uh, flows out of the perfect and eternal love that exists within the Trinitarian economy, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, have this perfect relationship. That's what love is. The relationship they have with each other is what love is, and all of existence flows out of that love. Um, and so it, it's kind of a, a beautiful um, window into that relationship that we see Jesus incarnate here, uh, the Word of God incarnate, 
praying to God the Father, and he, he removes himself, as, as is typical. Uh, we see this a few different times in the Gospels, uh, where he removes himself from the chaos of, um, you know, Capernaum and the, just the, the, you know, the, the constant activity of the world, uh, and then he goes and, and finds a time to just be uh, in conversation with his heavenly Father. Um, and this is more than just setting an example for us. This is, this is really what um, paradise is, to live with that, within that relationship of love uh, that the Trinity has had uh, from the beginning and always will have. Um, you know, New Testament Christians, we, we almost can't read uh, verse 30, uh, 35 about our Lord praying when it's still dark in a desolate place uh, without, without thinking ahead to uh, the end of our Lord's earthly ministry when he's going to uh, separate himself, uh, go off a little distance, pray in the darkness, uh, and then the people are going to come looking for him. Uh, but at that time, they're going to look for him, uh, not that, that he might heal them, uh, but that they might kill him. Um, so really, really kind of powerful foreshadowing here. Yeah, I think that's a that's an excellent point. You 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 even said this isn't just Jesus setting an example for us, which is that's exactly where I was going to go with you. Is you know is is this him saying, okay, you Christian, you need to get up early in the morning and and pray? Well, there's probably great wisdom in in setting. There is great wisdom in setting aside time to pray. If that is early in the morning, that's great. But Jesus is doing more than that here, and I love the way you connect this text with what we will see at the end of Mark's gospel, where Jesus goes off. And prays alone, and there we know what he prays. He's he's praying concerning our salvation, Lord. If it is your will, I mean, that that's what he is praying is for our salvation. And I think, I I really think that we should let that text where we have the words of Jesus' prayer set the the stage for the other times when he prays in the Gospels, because we do see it other times, and let that inform what he's praying there. That that here he is, he is engaged in prayer already knowing where he's going to the cross to give himself for the sins of the world. And, and again, the, the parallel that you draw there, here you've got people searching for Jesus. Later they will be searching for him in a different way. Now, so with Simon then, and again, Simon takes for, for he's, he comes to the, the foreground here. Again, probably, I mean, think, think of Mark listening to Peter telling these things. Well, this is what happened. He's, he's recounting what happened. Simon and those who are with him, they're searching for Jesus. They find him. Everybody's looking for you. What are they, are they looking for more healing? What are, what are they looking for? You think Pastor Speckard? Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to imagine that they're, uh, they're not just looking for, for what they had received the evening prior. Uh, Jesus is, is a man with incredible power. Uh, he's already uh, healed many and cast out many demons. What else might he be able to do for us? Um, you don't want to read too much into it because, uh, Mark doesn't give us a, a ton of detail, but, um, you know, the fact that, that <laughs> upon hearing that, uh, our Lord responds by saying, well, it's time for us to, to go into other towns, uh, throughout Galilee. Um, you know, that's maybe a reminder that what we have a tendency to do, uh, when we receive gifts from, from the Lord, uh, is immediately try to make them our own, try to control them. Uh, we might even say, try to manipulate them. Uh, and Jesus is not going to let that happen in Capernaum. Uh, he removes himself. Uh, he goes elsewhere uh, so that, uh, and it, without wanting to read too much into it, uh, I think it's it's not maybe a bad assumption, uh, so that the people aren't caught up in that temporal activity and 
that they might be forced to consider the eternal uh, gospel that, that he had uh, had come to deliver. And of course, he'll return to this fishing village and, uh, and he'll have an opportunity to, to teach and preach about that. Um, one thing I forgot to mention that I think is important uh, in, in verse 36, uh, St. Mark, the word that we translate, everyone is, um, uh, or, or what St. Mark says, they searched for him. Um, uh, the, the Greek is really closer to hunted him. Um, they tracked him down um, it, which really, I think, just underscores that the connection between this and the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, not that their intentions were uh, evil or as outwardly evil as the intentions of the mob uh, at the end of Jesus's ministry, uh, but there is this this uh, maybe foreboding in the way that Mark describes uh, the the crowd. There's a danger there, um, and I love that you you know when we don't know what Jesus is praying, it's a good thing to think to when we do know what he prayed. Our Lord would have known what was going to happen, obviously, uh, where this was all leading. Um, it's not a bad assumption to think that his prayer on this morning uh, was was maybe not too dissimilar to his prayer in the garden, because uh, he knew how people would react to his presence. So what exactly they're thinking, hunting him down, again, that's not entirely certain, but we do get Jesus' response, and he has a very specific purpose in mind. He says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. If they were looking for him to do more of these miracles, the casting out of demons, the healing, Jesus points them back to that most basic purpose of his, his primary purpose, which is to preach. Take us into Jesus' response and then how he goes and accomplishes it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly right. He came to preach the gospel. Uh, you go back to verse 15 in chapter 1, you know, repent and believe in the gospel. Well, the gospel isn't the um, sort of the immediate healing of diseases. Jesus didn't, didn't come to be the medicine man of Capernaum. That's, that would not be a sufficient uh, uh, sort of activity for the Son of God to have taken on our flesh and dwelt among us, for he had a much bigger purpose. And, uh, you know, for the sake of the people, uh, certainly in the surrounding regions, uh, for the sake of the whole world, he had to uh, go elsewhere, spread this message, share this news, demonstrate his authority in other places and other ways so that people would begin to understand his identity and his mission, uh, both before and obviously after uh, we reached the, the culmination of that mission on the cross. Um, we might also, I think it's just uh, important to recognize, you know, the people uh, there in Capernaum would have been, would have been very disappointed uh, to hear that Jesus was going to leave. Um, but it's for their benefit uh, that he, he removes himself from them. He removes that lowercase a activity of temporal healing, uh, lest that become an idol for them, lest they think that that's what he came to do. Uh, because as you said before, everybody he healed uh, the night previous was going to eventually get sick again and die. Um, everybody who he um, uh, cast uh, a demon out of uh, is going to be uh, later on uh, subject to the temptation and the uh, the darts of the evil one. I mean, Satan doesn't doesn't stop working against God's people just because uh, you know they've been healed or they've uh, they've uh, uh, been been cleansed uh, one time. What we all need, certainly, what the people there needed, was an eternal salvation from the spiritual uh, ailments 
uh, that plague us. And that gospel, that eternal salvation, that um, uh, forgiveness that only Jesus could bring, that's what he wanted to share. Um, and of course, in order to, to provide that, he had to go to the cross. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, they probably were disappointed when he said it's time to leave, uh, but it was for their sake that he left, uh, as well as for the sake of the whole world. With just about a minute and a half, Pastor Speckert, help us to wrap things up this morning and point us to Christ crucified and risen from this text. Yeah, I think that for me, uh, the the overarching theme that I kept, I kept coming back to uh, flows out of the title you chose for the series, The Gospel in Action. Uh, I mentioned before that uh, the way Luther defined steadfast love uh, there in the, the Old Testament as God's goodness in action, um, you know, I think it's so important that we all remember at this time of year, people are suffering from so much, uh, so much sin, so much sorrow, so much sickness, so much death. And these are real, painful, not just nebulous idea type of things. And God's response to that suffering, that sin, that sorrow is just as real and indeed real in a way that uh, transcends and defeats all of the evil we are facing in this life. Uh, God's love is action for us. God's gospel is the action of Christ who came with a purpose, uh, with a mission, uh, and he is accomplishing that already in Mark chapter 1, preaching, teaching about it, demonstrating his authority, but pointing us forward to what he ultimately came to do, uh, which is to go to the cross for me and for you. So um, always remember that when we talk about the love of God, not just an idea, but an action, the activity of Christ, God's Son. Pastor Dan Speckert is the pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. Pastor Speckert, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great to be back. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have a question from this text or concerning the gospel, according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from our listeners here on Sharper Iron. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.